You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko of Bethesopatheran, Cote St. Luke, Quebec. But today, you know, we, we, we've been, last week we talked so much about Canada and what's happening in Canada. Today, our hearts, minds, and uh, we're just looking towards, of course, over the ocean, towards what's occurring in, 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 in Russia and in Ukraine. And I don't know anybody, really, uh, Rabbi Popko, who is better suited to be able to give over to um, any audience, specifically a Jewish audience, about the significance of what has occurred with um, the invasion of the Ukraine. So I, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. This is your geopolitical backyard. Talk to us about why this is so significant um, uh, an event and how this is going to impact um, you know, Jewry and specifically, uh, obviously the Ukrainian Jewry, but way beyond that. Go ahead. You know, it's impossible for any Jew who with even a superficial knowledge of, uh, of Jewish history in Ukraine not to have uh, memories that go back uh, not 50 years or 100 years, but go back uh, several hundred years to events in the, in the, in the, in the Ukraine. Um, or as we say today, in Ukraine. Um, the Ukraine implies it's just a colony. Ukraine implies the, the truth, which is that it's an independent country. Um, Ukraine, like, you know, it's funny. Uh, Ukraine, kind of like uh, Ireland or other places like that, were always kind of um, national identities, but a colonized national identity. Because for most of the last 500 years, Ukraine did not enjoy independence. Uh, they were dominated uh, by the Tsar. They had fleeting moments of independence around World War I when the Tsar's regime collapsed, and then you had the Civil War uh, in Russia. And then you had them again fall under the sway of a dominant power, the same dominant power with a different name, the communist regime. And, um, uh, and it was only the last uh, number of years since the 90s that uh, you really have a sustained period of independence for Ukraine. But that's not to say there hasn't been a Ukrainian national identity for many centuries. There has been. And they were uh, they see themselves quite accurately as an oppressed people dominated by a more powerful neighbor um there were times before that where they were under polish rule but a more dominant power generally the russians um you know part of the problem in this conversation you know uh in my mind triggers a memory from the uh from the 80s when william f buckley of blessed memory was on nightline with ted koppel and uh, there was the representative of the Russian government, uh, a media fellow, a Jewish fellow, uh, Posner, Vladimir Posner, who said something about, you know, the communist position in those days. And Buckley said something very succinctly, which should be said about and to Putin today, which is, you're not telling us what you believe. You're telling us what you want us to believe you believe. And it's a simple way of saying you're lying. So when Putin talks about 
you know, Russian history and Ukrainian history and Ukrainian being a phony this and a phony that. And people say, oh, Putin is, you know, is, 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 a, is you know, is, is motivated by this vision of, 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 of what Russia is and Ukrainian. No, Putin knows better than anybody that Ukraine has a strong independent national identity and has for centuries. But he's not, he doesn't believe what he's saying. He's telling us what he, we, he wants us to believe he believes. You know, people say, talk, he's delusional, he's this, he's that. No, he's a calculated player on the world stage who wants to dominate Ukraine for a couple of very important reasons to him. Number one, um, I know I got went off on a tangent. I was going to talk about the Jewish history, but I'll get back to it. But number one, he wants to dominate Ukraine because his entire world thinking is informed by humiliation. And that's, an enti- that's a very dangerous motivation, humiliation, restore, you know, repairing humiliation. He was sitting in the Soviet embassy in East Berlin when the wall came down. He experienced firsthand the absolute collapse of the system to which he had dedicated his life. And he saw the dissolution of the Soviet Union the departure of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, Belarus, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, the, collapse, the complete collapse of the Soviet Union. And he, and he has been bearing this humiliation, which he has referred to as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century for decades. And he wants to, and he's motivated by humiliation. Now there's alternative paths to dealing with humiliation. Right. He could have chosen a very different path. He could have chosen the early not, you know, from the time he assumed power. So in Russia could have chosen a different path, which is to build up your own country. You suffer humiliation, build up your own country. Instead, the, the Russian economy today is like the Soviet economy. They're good at oil, caviar and vodka. Is there anyone in the world? waiting for the next Russian technological advance or the next Russian, you know, medical advance. No, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a country where the smartest leave, right, building up the uh, scientific achievements of countries like Israel, Australia, the U.S., and in Russia itself, it is a paralyzed, it has a third-world economy. So, so how does he deal with humiliation? He deals with humiliation by trying to recreate, at least partially, the, the, the Soviet Empire. He's done that now in Belarus by sending troops in to support the dictator there. He sends in 30,000 troops for a training exercise a few weeks ago, leaves them there. And now that very group of soldiers are the ones attacking Kiev as we speak um, from Belarus. And um, as you, you know, as you can, and anyone who wants to really understand these, to the very least, look at a map. And, and, he's, and he's driven by this humiliation. The other thing that motivates Putin is this idea that since, you know, uh, uh, 2014, when Yankovic, the, uh, the, the pro-Russian president of Ukraine, was deposed by the Ukrainian people because he broke his commitment to align with the European Union, is that he now there's a successful, vibrant democracy on his border. And that is a startlingly offensive uh, example to, uh, to Putin. Uh, the fear that he has is that it's an example to his people what a dem- democratic country could look like. And he doesn't want that model next to him. Well, and, let, uh, let, let, let me stop you just for one second. And you've been yeah. you've been great. And as, as I always said, you were the definitely the pontiff of pontification. And, and I, <laughs> I appreciate it, um, especially as we are we're, we're commemorating the Purim play where you were the pope 
Uh, That's true. Yes. Yes, you were the Pope. So let me ask you something, though. Again, obviously, you, you talk about Putin as if uh, he can push a button and everybody, you know, goes into lockstep. Clearly, Putin isn't just one man. Uh, you talked about his his the biographical data and his age and what he was as a KGB agent and as he served the Soviet state. But it has to be that I don't know if it's the Politburo anymore, but it has to be the people are with him on that. He can't just he isn't uh, the type of dictator that can just snap his fingers and everything will happen the way he wants it. It must be that he has tapped into not just his desire, but there is a desire on the behalf of of the Russian people that he represents to do what he's doing. They are. Right. But, But for the first time. I, not the first time, but for one of the few times under Putin's rule, you've seen demonstrations against him. Remember, everybody who walks into the street with a placard in St. Petersburg or Moscow, as they have, knows they're going to be arrested and, 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 and subjected to a penal system the likes of which uh, none of us can truly imagine. And we know what Russia does to its political dissidents. Mm-hmm. We know what happens in Navalny. We know what happened in, in, even in places like Britain to political dissidents who, who managed to, okay. to, to leave Russia. So, 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 you, so you, again, you have thousands demonstrating, which represent many more than that. But again, I, I would, I'm not sure that anyone could really understand the exact workings of the power structure in Russia. But it's clear through the years of Putin's rule, he has limited it the government and the influential people to those who are dependent on him, right? Dependent on him in that kleptocracy where the, the people have been, you know, where, where the resources of, of Russia are, 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 are funneled to a handful of, of oligarchs, including himself. And, and one of the things that critics of American governments, and I don't mean Biden, I mean Trump and, and Obama before him, you know, have said is, why doesn't the American government reveal once and for all the intelligence that they have on Putin's material wealth and where he's hiding not millions of dollars, but billions of dollars. And that applies to him and the entire ruling clique. I believe that many people in Russia and in Ukraine clearly did not believe he would ever do this, believe the whole thing was a bluff to get better terms from the Ukraine, Ukraine proclaiming they would never join NATO, or simply to make himself relevant on, on on the world stage so that he you know, is, is is the guy that everybody's talking about. But mm-hmm. um, but the, the I, I, and I think the people the closest to him are loyal to him, but I don't think you're incorrect. I think that Putin has now for the first time triggered a response from the Russian people and probably in the ruling circle itself of people who are will be profoundly skeptical of this decision. What's the end game? He's marching on Kiev. He wants to depose Zelensky and impose a Russian puppet. We know what happens then. That was the uncovered in, in a milder form in 2014. The Ukrainian people. So, will let, let me stop you for a second. You said, you know, we, we know Zelensky is a Jew. I don't know uh, how how uh, passionately he identifies himself as a Jew. Um, I loved his speech. At least I heard the translation of it. But is his government the way you? described it a real democracy is ukraine Absolutely. democracy yes uh-huh. there's freedom of speech the freedom of assembly all the jeffersonian ideals of democracy are present is it bereft of corruption no the ukrainian you know it's it's, it's a you okay. know it's a new country. so it's so perfect. all right so so let me stop you for a second if ukraine is really this, this democracy and i you know i'm looking at the map here in order for 
to understand it. As a student of Jewish history and, and rabbinic um, scholarship that I try to dabble in and be part of, I love, you know, I see these names. I know how Jewish these cities and their histories are. Ashitomer, Tarnopol, um, uh, Lvov. Lvov, yeah. yeah. You're talking here about, you know, <laughs> again, some of the bigger towns really only, you know, flourished uh, towards the end of the 19th century. But there are certain cities here that were part of Galicia and other places that right. they had some of the most important Rabonim. Uh, oh, right, I, I understand I that. Yeah, the first well, time well, I traveled to Eastern Europe, and I'm on a highway, and I see a sign that says Kutsk, 30 kilometers, <laughs> yeah. Lublin, 60 yeah. kilometers. I right. thought I was in a dream world. These yeah. were cities that were part of our imagination, no, part no, of it, our fantasy right, world. Right. And, and, the, and to and, see them on a street sign, on a road directions, I, I it, it completely blew my mind. These are real places that are concrete. I know this sounds <laughs> silly, but I, I cannot tell you how jarring it is to see these places of our Jewish imagination, they're real places. Okay. And it's unbelievable. It really is. And Shatomer, Tarnapol, listen, I want to finish one thing I said before the talk about what you want to talk about. Remember something. And this is very important for the Jewish people. Policies born out of humiliation are dangerous. And that's what this is. It's a policy born out of the sense of humiliation and how to erase that feeling of humiliation. That same dynamic took hold in Germany after World War I. Uh-huh. Right? They, had been sta- they, they, they had lost the war. They decided they only lost because of being stabbed in the back, the great myth of World War, post-World War I Germany. And that humiliation created the dynamic that made World War II possible. I want to point out the contrast, however, with the Jewish people. We suffered the worst humiliation in human history, in the Holocaust, where we couldn't protect even a million and a half Jewish children. No no people suffered the humiliation we suffered. And what did we do with that humiliation? We built a beautiful, thriving, flourishing state of Israel. That's the other way to deal with humiliation. The Germans and the Russians are dealing with humiliation by trying to erase it, by dominating others, and by destruction. Jewish people dealt with humiliation by building and by harnessing the genius and creativity of the Jewish people to build a very wonderful place. Well, well, part of that, look, it's obvious that the difference is, is that although uh, cities like Lutsk, like Poltava, like that had wonderful Rabbonim and vibrant communities, they were always davening for Yerushalayim, davening for Yisrael, realizing right. that this wasn't their essence. None of them really, and again, I'm not talking about the Bundists, I'm not talking about the radical masculine, but we know that the, the, there was a love of, of Eretz Yisrael, proto-Zionism even before real Zionism started to uh, develop. So therefore, I'm not, it, it, it's, of course it's our resilience, but it also is because we had in our, in our, right. in our, in our collective DNA that this isn't our place anyway. So therefore, we can rebound, and as if get us there to Israel, we're going to make it happen. I, I would say something else in addition to that. In our collective DNA, in our collective consciousness, we had this, you know, the, the resilience of hope and faith. Look, and, when, and when I'm looking, I'm looking at the Ukraine, and and, and again, I, I, this is a recording. 
but for anybody who's uh, listening and wondering what we do, I told Rabbi Pupko that I needed to actually see, and I'm on the Google Maps of, and, and I see here, of course, as I uh, as I pull outward and or pull inward, and I see it even more. Hand, of course, Uman I knew was under uh, uh, threat, but I also see, uh, and I don't know if it, there's Berdichev right here, Dubna Berdichev Broad. Uh, you know, oh, again, uh, you look at the map and. It- Oh, listen, I want to tell you, my, my Zayden, my mother's father, Rabbi Shalom the Nova Seller, was rov in a place called Filshtim. He was rabbi he's near Berdichev. His first wife was the granddaughter or a grandchild of Rabbi Yitzhak of Berdichev. He was rov in Filshtim during the Petlura pogroms. Now, the fact that 99% of the Jews in the world today can't, don't know the name Petlura is, is an embarrassment. But anyway, Petlura was the Ukrainian nationalist leader during World War I who was a hero to the Ukrainian people, who was regularly honored in the Ukraine, led pogroms which killed tens of thousands of Jews in World War I, because what happened, The again, as I mentioned, the Tsar regime had collapsed, there was a fleeting moment of Ukrainian independence, and the Russians, the communists wanted to, you know, were trying to dominate, and the, the Petlora was fighting off the communists, and again, in his in his mind, Jews and communists were synonymous. And the my Zayda's first wife and his two of his three children were murdered in front of him. Um, my mother, my late mother, is the daughter of his second wife, Rivka Miriam of blessed memory, who was the granddaughter of the Belzalov. And he um, and after the, the pogroms in World War One, a memorial book was written about this one small place in the Ukraine. So times it by a thousand, right, in Phil Steep. It's about a 350-page book. In there, there are, uh, it's called the Dreitzen Shilas. My Zayda has a chapter in the book where he describes the 13 questions he got after the war. I'll just share two of them with you. One of them was, In every single soul in, the, in Phil Steep, Everybody is saying Kaddish. There is no one to say, oh, man, can we say Kaddish? Okay? That, the other question I remember was, we found a piece of a human leg next to your dead wife. Whose is it? And where, what should we do with it? And he wrote back, this is mine, this is mine, bury wow. it with my wife. Wow. Okay? So I, those are the Petlora programs. Let's not forget the Chomenitsky pogroms, right, of the 17th century, when we don't know how many Jews were murdered. We don't know. Right. And there is a I'm city at, called, there is a city called Chomenitsky. I'm looking at it you right go here. To Kiev, you go to Kiev today, the town square of Kiev, there's a man, a heroic statue, huge bronze statue of a man on a horse. Chomenitsky. He is the hero of Ukrainian nationalism. Before the Holocaust, it was the single worst slaughter in, in, dia- in Jewish diaspora history, right? It was those events. I mean, you know, there's a beautiful right. book out that everyone should read, save, uh, To Save the Tormented Souls, I believe is the name, describing the response of other Jewish communities to the slaughter of Jews in the Ukraine and the tens of thousands of Jewish refugees created in those programs of Jews. Uh, uh, look, 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 I, 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 understand, I understand. Look, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, we opened up here, I think, wounds, personal and ma- macro and micro for you. And I, and I appreciate that. No, but the other, but, no, but I, 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 I'm, I'm trying. 
ostensibly by a Jewish president, generate uh, a, a resurgence of Jewish life in cities in the Ukraine? And if so, how terrible is the threat to them now of, uh, of, Pu- of Putin's invasion? Here's, what, here, here's what's happening right now. Let's remember that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a full 80% of the Jews of the Ukraine made Aliyah. Okay, so 80% left in, in, the, in, in the 90s. Okay, and, um, um, and, and they, they got out. Uh, according, I just want to get the numbers right. Um, according to a 1989 census, there were a half a million Jews in the Ukraine in 89. But there are probably many more than that. Those are the half a million. 80% of them left. Right now, according to the census uh, in, of 2020, two years ago, um, there was a core population of 43,000 Jews. But, but again, there are many more who say they're Jewish. It, it's, not comp- it's very complicated. Right now, there are three major Jewish communities yeah. in, in Ukraine. You have 110,000 Jews in Kiev. Wow. You have a little under 50,000 Jews in Kharkov and a little under 50,000 Jews in, in Odessa. Um, so that's 200,000, which is the number I've been hearing. 200,000 right. Jews. Right. So the communities, I mean, listen, there's Jews scattered elsewhere. Listen, I think had we, if we could turn back the clock, but I said it even at the time because I'm so brilliant, uh, that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, instead of certain organizations that I'll leave unmentioned, sending emissaries in, into the Ukraine to sustain those Jews, they should have sent those emissaries to the Ukraine to encourage them to make Aliyah. I see. Now, I know. I so you're talking about Chabad. And, and, and so there, I mean, listen, there's always a number that will stay behind. And Chabad and the Jewish agency and the JDC deserve enormous credit for taking care of the elderly Jews who obviously couldn't leave or felt they couldn't leave the Ukraine after all, after, after living their whole lives there. And going to a new country was certainly too overwhelming. And we're tied there for many, many good reasons mm-hmm. to take care of them. But the main focus should have been Aliyah. Right. The main focus should have been Aliyah. And instead of the way, I I, I know my good friend Pesach Krone talked about you mentioned the three cities, um, Odessa, uh, Lvov and Kharkov. But I Pesach Krone went on. uh, What were the three? uh, Odessa. I mentioned Kiev, Odessa and Kharkov, but but you're right. Lvov is also important. Right, and, we, but, he, but there aren't that many Jews in the Pesa, Pesa talked about a, a school of 150 kids in Uman, which I right. found. Uman, listen, Uman has a few hundred Jews. These are people who think it's Rosh Hashanah every day, and, uh, and they and, do what? They think it's Rosh Hashanah every day. Yeah, right. right, but yeah. but they but they're running a school there, which is quite. I right. found uh, right. you know, it isn't it isn't just you know for the tourists who come during right. uh, during Yom Naroyim. so. You know, if there's 150 kids in a school, there must be some sort of community there that they're that they're. No, no, for sure. Again, but again, I I really believe that when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, and, and again, know. Over, a million, over a million Jews went to Israel. It was an incredible miracle for so, for so, Israel so, for those so, less. So what I'm getting from you is that these communities. I mean, you disagree with you know whatever you know the Chabadskers did in terms of strengthening them and making yeshivas there. And, and by the way, let me just be Olamet Swiss on Chabad a little bit. I think what what uh, you know Y.Y. Jacobson and others have have told the rest of the world was that and and and, and, and again my. Uh, parent, my mother's family is from Simferopol, 
which oh, is wow. which is uh, which is Crimea, but I think I think it's sort of very close to the Ukraine. It's on it's by the Black Sea, yes. and yeah. and and I from where I remember speaking to my grandmother and to my mother, they did not have you know these Chabad agents, so to speak, there and 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 they were really in a way crumbling. But I think the cities that that Chabad sent their people back to had deep roots. Not and there were Chabadskers operating almost like secret agents uh, throughout the period of, of 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 Soviet domination. So I think it's it's sort of like you know again a a weird <laughs> sort of a weird compliment to Putin saying this is our country. I think the Chabad Hever there said we were here, we had schools here, we had yeshivas, we had secret schools. So now let's sort of like build it out. Now that there's a no, no, I, listen, I, listen, I have no argument and I'm a passionate admirer of Chabad for taking care of the Jews in a very meaningful way who insist on staying there. I understand that. I just believe that some of their energy should have been focused on getting them the heck out of there. Right, right. But, but, but Chabad, is not, see, Chabad isn't just about creating like like a social club for the old people and and you know making them feel good and, and serve them tea at the with the samovar. What they are about is okay. We're going to now create a school. We're going to bring a shliach from Eretz Yisrael. We're going to build things up. Um, and, and that's their modus operandi. And this is not, I don't want this to be a show about Chabad, but I think that's what, what happens now, right. though, okay. based well, on what said, they... if, you send, if you send a rabbi to a place, it's his, he, it, he immediately becomes the one interested in sustaining that community. Right. Right. So not I, dissolving so, it. Right, so, and I so, think some of the intent should have been in, dissol- in, in, in dissolution oh, of these communities. Oh, okay, good. Maybe that was a misstep. What I want to know from your perspective is the danger to those communities that they started to tend and started to develop. Is it really Sakonis Nefoshis now if uh, the okay, Russians come I, in? I, I, first of all, I want to mention something about Crimea because you brought it up. Crimea was always part of Russia. In 1954, Khrushchev, whose gains are purely psychological for Putin, right, or because he perceives a neighboring democracy as some kind of threat, is an insanely criminal act, and, and it's indefensible. Yes, you can look at some mistakes in the past that, you know, had they not occurred, maybe this wouldn't have happened, but there's no question that what's happening today on the ground poses a risk to the hundreds to the tens of thousands of Jews remaining in the Ukraine, as it does to every Ukrainian. There's, a, there's an exodus underway, as you see on your map, from the Ukraine into Poland. Um, and again, we're, we have seen the return of history. This is the 19th century. Land wars of, of, you know, of, of the powerful against the weak in Europe. We have an epidemic even going on. So th- this is the return of, of, you know, of, of history. We're living in a very dangerous time. And remember, the key issue at play here is, is, is cannot be limited to what's happening to the Ukraine. But the precedent it sets in, in, in the world community for the respect for sovereignty and borders. And if Putin gets away with this, what does that mean for Taiwan? Right? What does it mean in other parts of the world? What does it mean in terms of international norms? And, uh, and, and we're living in this is a very dangerous moment. And there's no question that in some ways, a more dangerous moment than we lived in after 9-11 because of, of, of the precedent that it sets for 
world, you know, for, 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 for the behavior of governments. It's, yeah. it's a terrible president. Let's unpack that for a second. I, I heard someone make that comment last night as well from um, National Review. I forgot what his name was. He also felt like you did that this was more important than 9/11. And let's I'm gonna unpack that the way I understand it. Now, 9/11, of course, showed that Muslim extremists uh, were taking uh, very aggressive, uh, aggressive action uh, and attacking us, and therefore we had to be careful because they would attack us everywhere. Right here, here the difference is is that as you know, whether however powerful Osama bin Laden was. He was his his power was definitely very small compared to the country he was starting up with. Guerrilla tactics and and terror were definitely something that could change our lives and, and scare us. But here we're talking about not uh, we're talking as 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 much as you put down Russia as a third world country, it still is something much more significant. And as you say, it emboldens China, and therefore because of where it's situated in Europe. We're, we, you could have land grabs that could change the whole map of 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 whole countries. And, and, and we should also remind you know remind everyone of another simple point. In, in the, in the mid nineties, the British, the Americans, and the Russians signed an agreement called the Budapest Accords. What happened is that in return for Ukraine surrendering its nuclear weapons, right? When I should say return. They moved the nuclear weapons that had been stationed in the Ukraine under the, you know, under, under the regime of the, of, of the Soviets. They moved them all to Russia. Russia took possession of all of the Ukrainian nukes. In return for that, Russia committed itself to respecting the sovereignty of, of Ukraine. Now, after this story, where Ukraine gets invaded, which wouldn't have happened had they kept their nukes, obviously, what do countries like North Korea and Iran, what lesson do they derive? Especially after you had the Libyan debacle where they gave up you know, their weapons of mass destruction. Look what happened to them, right? If you're Kim Jong-un today, if you're, uh, if you're uh, the Raisi today in Iran, do you give up your weapons when the guys that do end up being squashed by dominant powers? Right? I mean, there are so many dangers. So what, 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 right. So what you're saying is, just to make it clear, is that this is not only going to uh, we talked about the fear of invasion that, and, and, and the real fear that could happen. We're also talking about now the deterrence that are going to push countries to uh, avoid the invasion is to build up their nuclear stockpiles, which makes the whole planet much more dangerous because there's all these nukes that are being developed because they don't want to lose their independence, right? That's what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, but it's, it, it, this is a horrendously dangerous thing. And I, I really do believe that there is a chance for the Ukrainian people to end up victorious here. I really do believe there's a chance of that. They, if the Russians install a puppet regime, as seems likely, that will not be tolerated in Ukraine. The, uh, the, the street will erupt. It persistently erupt. We know that the Ukrainian people are a proud people. They are a defiant and courageous people. And they will defy the, the, the Russians. They will. question is, in order to dominate Ukraine, the military analyst that I've read says that Russia needs 800,000 troops to really dominate Ukraine. And they don't have that number there, right? They, they're, they're going in with 100,000 or 150,000. And, and so the question is, what do they intend to do? Is it a hit and withdraw, you know, go in there, shake things up, put in a, a pro-Soviet 
puppet regime was a Praetorian guard and try to sustain it that way? Who knows what they're thinking? But right now, they do not have the troops available to dominate Ukraine. They do not. And, and so the question is, what is Putin's endgame here? How does this end? And that's the question nobody can answer. Yeah. Let's just also, before we, I, I want to ask you, a, I think, a very important question, which is on many people's minds. I think it's important to emphasize uh, you know, what Putin was saying, uh, other than like the pseudo history of how Ukraine is really Russia and it's a canard to say that we should be separate. The uh, he, he's been saying about the repression that the uh, Ukrainian regime has uh, enacted upon people who have pro-Russian leanings. Right. And, and, and oh, let me just, wait, wait, wait. I just want to say one other thing. I want to put it out there. And and I was listening to this last night as I was driving my daughter to uh, her overnight in the animal hospital. And we were both shocked when we heard this idea, the denazification, the denazification of Ukraine. I'm Putin said, we're fighting World War II again. We are going to fight these Nazis in, in Ukraine. How, how could he, even in the most propagandic, crazy world, how could he say something like that? Right. No, here's the thing. What we don't understand here in the West about Russia is that the, war, the story of World War II is the dominant story mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in the Russian narrative about themselves. Sure. So, and what they, and, and therefore, you know, Putin lies when he said he's going there to do denazification, but that, those are very powerful words in Russia because that is their national identity. It's a major part of their national identity is their ability to defeat the, the Nazis. Now, Obviously, there's no denazification necessary. There's no persecution of Russian speakers in Ukraine. Uh, Obviously not. I mean, there were some, you know, language laws with which I am painfully familiar because of Quebec. But there are some language laws here and there about, you know, what language is acceptable in courtrooms or whatever. But it's not a serious. Zelensky's native tongue is Russian. Yes. Okay. He's a native Russian speaker. Uh, Millions, millions of Russians have relatives in the Ukraine. Yes, we, we all know that. Okay, and 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 again, under the Soviet Union, they were moving back and forth. But we also have to remember other things here. We have to remember what happens after World War One. Millions of Ukrainians were starved to death by Stalin, right? And what they call the Holodomor. In this cataclysmic, they were moved between two and a half and four million Ukrainians were deliberately starved to death by Stalin. They would troops would go house to house confiscating food, and they died the most horrible death. The Ukrainians do not have fond memories of Russia, okay? They, they, remember, the communists in, in, in Russia alone killed more people than were killed, uh, you know, the, 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 more, more, more people than, 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 than our people lost in, in World War II. They killed millions and millions of people. So there's a long history here. Of, which has triggered enormous animosity from you know from from native Ukrainians against the, against the Russians. I mean, well, the, the crime. Well, 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 Zelensky did say, and I, I you know, it's like he said, "You're not going to see our backs. <laughs> we're going to be we're going to fight to the death." This is what he said. But on the other hand, I heard him say that uh, please, everybody who can get a gun, take a gun because we'll right. need everybody. Um, right. and, and, but, but you have some hope. Let, 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 let me ask you the big question. And this is what was on my mind and um, is the reason why Putin has become so emboldened. Uh, is it because, again, we know uh, even 
in Obama's time, there was an abdication of this idea of fighting for democracy throughout the world, uh, making the world safer, uh, the ideals of, of, of worldwide human humanity and peace. America stopped in that role. Let me just put one more step here. Donald Trump was not he uh, did not want us to be America's, the, the world's policemen, right? As, whatever his differences with Obama were, and I, I don't, you know, we don't go into that. He was not, he, did, he didn't want to say, oh, we're going to go back and, and send troops in. Um, do you believe that this has to do with Biden's weakness or this is something that's been building up since Obama? And Trump? I, I think, I think there, there's a continuum of America policy from Obama to Trump to Biden. Obama. And again, many people felt this way at the time. You remember how Romney was laughed at for mentioning Russia as a strategic threat. And Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State at the time, had the decency to apologize to Romney this week. Right? But again, how he was widely mocked in the media when in the debate with Obama, he talked about you know, Russia being the number one strategic threat to, 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 to America. But again, we all remember... Remember that Putin put up this phony president, Medvedev, for a while. Obama was caught on a hot mic whispering to him, don't worry, after the election, I'll be more forthcoming on missile defense. Remember that whole, that whole conversation? Uh, so, again, the, the reset button, we, I saw into his soul when Bush even said, he's a good guy, right? They're, they're all going to get along. You know, Americans have this problem where we think that that which animates us, which motivates us, must motivate everybody which is prosperity, freedom, and this and that. And obviously, Putin's a rational man. Obviously, he's going to choose to collaborate on all this stuff. No, not everybody thinks the way we do. And the Americans have to realize that. And they still don't realize it. But again, you have to give Trump credit for one thing. He did send defensive missiles, the Javelin missiles, to the Ukraine, which, which Obama had refused to do. Um, so, so Trump did that, but his rhetoric on Russia was completely insane. I mean, it bordered on the treasonous. Or in, in, when, when, when he was asked multiple times, once before he was elected, once after he was elected, what do you think about the Russian assassination of political dissidents in Europe? And Obama, and what did Trump answer? Trump said, what, you don't think we do that also? No, we don't do that. We don't. No, right. we don't. Well, Obama, no, we don't do that. There's no moral equivalency between America and Russia. None whatsoever. Yeah, well, Trump's knowledge of what we do was based <laughs> on, you know, old episodes of Mission Impossible that he saw. Because uh, you know, I don't think people talked <laughs> about the security briefings where they would come into Trump every day and he was just on his on his phone to do uh, checking his Twitter account. He right. could not uh, for all his you know smarts and wiliness. I don't think he understood really what was happening in the world. But my question is, if Trump would be president, and he could have been president had he made some smarter moves, do you think this invasion would have happened? That's my question. Well, one advantage of having a crazy person's president is that you tend to people tend to fear that. So maybe not. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you, I remember reading somebody. So you're, so you're not blaming. So let me just follow up on that. You and just to repeat, it's not Biden's fault. It's not Biden's fault in your mind. No, I would say I would say two things about that. Biden's done better the last two months than any of us had a right to expect in terms of keeping the West together. I know it's not perfect. The sanctions could have been tougher. But again, he, he did not a bad job the last couple of months. But there's also no question that if you argue that 
the weakness demonstrated by America in Afghanistan withdrawal and the, and the, and the incompetence demonstrated could inspire an enemy uh, you know, to take advantage. That's a decent argument, but we don't know. That's very possible. But I would say there's a continuum of bad policy towards the Russians since since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and, and you know, you could make the argument, some have, that, you know, America should, in fact, fight for the Ukraine. Certainly send them more weapons and put more troops in Poland or Lithuania at this moment as a, you know, as a deterrence. Maybe there's more they can do. But there have been mistakes made by a series of American administrations here, right? Some of the mistakes was to unnecessarily provoke the Russians by expanding NATO. Other than them was this naive hope that Russia wanted to be normalized and, and embraced mm-hmm. uh, by the West. And there were invitations to join you know, whatever the G20, I think it was at the time, and to be a partner with Europe. But the, the Russian pride, or I should really put it a little bit differently, the sense of humiliation um, has driven them, you know, to be, uh, to want to be a player on the world stage, which in their weakened state meant basically making mischief. I mean, look what they did in 2015 by propping up Assad in Syria. I mean, what was that for? I mean, just to have a warm water port in the Mediterranean? I mean, what was that all about? You know, they, they want to be relevant. They're desperate. I understand. You're a rabbi of an important shul. Are you telling the people that we have to daven even extra special for the 200,000 plus Jews in the Ukraine now? Should monies be sent to institutions to try to help them. What, what's yes, the, what the, words, give us the Jewish words, message. What's needed right now on the ground is two things. I, 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 one is easy, one is a little, is a little maybe more, maybe very complicated, is helping the Jews who are, who are fleeing into Poland right now and to help sustain them. And, and that I know, uh, you know, there are charitable organizations, the Jewish Agency and others, and, and the Federation Movement in America that's doing a lot to help the, uh, Ukrainian refugees now finding safe haven in Poland. The other thing is, what can we do for the Jews in the Ukraine? And that's a tough challenge because we're talking about a dangerous terrain in wartime, but how to get aid there, and that's very important. And do you, again, I know that they are scared. I know they've been saying that if this becomes a puppet regime, if it becomes just part of Russia again, we are in danger. Is it possible that Putin will, I mean, we know it isn't as terrible as it used to be in the Soviet Union. Is it possible, despite all the, you know, back to the old Cold War mentality, that these schools and and, and shuls can still pretty much function? I mean, on record, Putin says, I'm against anti-Semitism, right? It's not the way- Putin has allowed Jewish life in in Russia. That's what I'm saying. No, no, there's no question. Putin has allowed uh, Jewish life in in Russia. I mean, listen, they, you know, they dabble in, you know, some things which are, you know, not great for us, but uh, they certainly help Iran in ways that are very dangerous to the state of Israel. But they also allow the Israeli Air Force a free hand, mostly in Syria, targeting Hezbollah uh, shipments and Iranian sites in, in Syria. So it's a complicated picture, which is what, why, and that explains the reluctance of the Israeli government to, uh, to forcefully denounce uh, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, because we need Putin in Syria. We need Putin's, uh, you know, uh, you know, help so, in Syria. So, so is it possible that the, the the large Jewish population in 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 Kiev 
and in Lvov and, and Kharkov and those places, maybe it, it'll be unrest, it'll be difficult, but as things settle out, maybe they will be able to function. You know, they might have to cross their T's and dot their I's differently. But should we see this as, you know, no, I think the there's push? a clear threat now during violent conflict. There's a clear uh, threat as there, are to every, as there is to every Ukrainian, whether there's a threat in the long term for the sustainability of those, uh, of those communities and the aftermath when the dust settles. I think you're probably right. So in other words, we should be worried about the fact that the average foot soldier, we have to see him as a Cossack. You know what I'm saying? We have to worry that these foot soldiers that are there uh, are going to be so aggressive. And they're yeah, gonna... but there's, there's no evidence that they're targeting Jews, but the point is they're targeting every Ukrainian. So they're, they're, the Jews are in trouble, and, and they're at risk, obviously, and we have to help, uh, as we always have, and we always will. And we have to help the refugees coming into, into Poland. But, but really, you, what we just said questions whether they should even be running into Poland in the first place. Because we know that as refugees, they are going to be leaving Again, it's one thing to say, I've got to leave Germany because in, in, in 1930s, right. because I'm going to be exterminated. And therefore, I'm going to become a refugee. I'm going to leave all my money behind. Perhaps they shouldn't really become refugees. I don't know. Listen, I don't know. Listen, if because, there are places in Ukraine right now that are under sustained military assault. Can't ask people to stay there. <laughs> right. So, you know, it depends where you are in Ukraine. And that's obviously a big story. Mm-hmm. So, and so they, they, they're... They're, they're refugees because staying is not, although, again, Putin did say, put down your arms and we'll just take you over. You know, right. again, part of the reason they're they're being you know, attacked is because the Ukrainian people have that pride. And, of course, the Jews really. I, I, that's, not, that's kind of blaming the victim. But the point is the Ukrainian people will defend Ukrainian independence. They will. I, Again, so therefore, we should definitely try to um, figure out, and and there should be, I, I guess, really the Aguda and 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 Young Israel and the, the OU uh, the, and all the organizations should really come and and, and create one. I, I believe that fund. everyone who's raising money, the money ends up in the same place. I think everyone's raising money for the same fund. I believe that's what I understood. And and it, and it should be in an effective way because we know that one of the things that happens when you have these humanitarian crises is that the, the everything gets all uh, skewed and the money goes into the wrong. It, it goes into so many yeah, different. But, but again, the, the the record of of the federations in America and the joint especially has always been a very stellar reputation. They they, they, they there's never been any hint of uh, of misappropriation. Oh. Or even incompetence. They do a good job. They know what they're doing. They have the right people in their back. Right. Well, well, you know, as we enter, you know, as man, you know, of other where we think about Avionim, we think about Sadokas, we don't need to imagine because right now they're they're right there on the world stage and uh, people should contact their Rabbonim, contact their rabbis, maybe even contact Beth Israel and Beth Aaron. And Rabbi Pupko will, will assure that uh, your, <laughs> your, your money will go to the right place at this anyway. point. <laughs> all, right. all right, listen, let's have a peaceful and hopefully a, a, a good Shabbos. And, and, and we have to get ready, though. We have to get ready for this, this change listen, world. You know, you know, as a descendant of Ukraine, my unit might get called up and I may have to man the front lines, you know, but we'll see. Yes, I would be scared because that is, you know, you are, <laughs> you, you are Rambo. And um, who else? Who would you say you're a combination of? I would say sort of like. I um, would say, so I would say. Vilna Gaon and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, Vilna Gaon and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wow, that is some combination there. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I in, in that spirit, I'll say we'll be back.
next week, <laughs> hopefully, with another Emeritus Rex. Take care, everybody. Have a good Shabbos. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.